Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today, I got to interview Jonathan Parks Ramage, who was, oh my gosh, such a joy to talk to. I had so much fun chatting with him. It was a blast talking about his story, his book, Yes, Daddy. Oh my goodness, stop what you're doing and go order that anywhere you buy books, preferably indie bookstores. That is an incredible book. It is about a young young man in his early 20s that is in New York City and just trying to find his way into the playwright world. And he ends up in a relationship with a older, rich, famous man that he thinks is going to answer all of his hopes and dreams, but it comes to a pretty dark plot twist and my gosh it's such a good book it talks it goes into a lot of depth about um power dynamics in relationships and what that looks like in regards to uh rape culture and all that stuff we we talked a lot about that in our conversation such a good book highly recommend you going and checking it out but we also talked about um jonathan's journey with testicular cancer he talks about that in a really really eye-opening way of it just being like something in your body's trying to kill you and you're literally fighting against your body and that is one of the biggest darkest plot twists of someone's relationship with their body very, very eye-opening conversation. We talked about that. We talked about what it looks like to finding a really good therapist that you have chemistry with, that you feel safe with, that you want to talk to, how that's all the difference. We talked about coming out to his parents as gay. His parents were ministers in a church in Massachusetts, but as he talks about in the interview, they were very liberal, so it wasn't as bad as it could have been but it opened up a lot of a lot of conversation about what it looks like being queer and Christian, what it looks like in the deconstruction phase and the, if you want to call it, reconstruction phase and just what that has looked like and the toxicity of evangelicalism and how there's trauma there for pretty much anybody if they are in need of it. <laughs> but yes, such a great interview. I really, really enjoyed it and I cannot wait to hear your guys' thoughts on his book and more to come. So anyway, I hope you guys enjoy. If you guys are enjoying the Unity Project podcast and you want to support me and get more involved in what I'm doing, then you can go check out my Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash JackieGTV. That is where you can support me for as little as $1 a month. Or if you'd like to learn more about my story and how I got from there to here type of thing, then you can check out my book, Finding Home. That is the story of me looking for what the meaning of home is and how to find home inside of my own body. If you want to pick up a copy of that, then either send me a DM on Instagram or check out my website. All of that information, the links will be in the description box below. Or if you want to support me but cannot afford to do so financially right now, then leaving a review anywhere you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple or Spotify or Podbean, leaving a review down there, letting people know what you think, that is extremely helpful. So thank you so much. I hope you enjoy.
Jonathan, how's it going up in the sunny Los Angeles? It is glorious and sunshiny and gorgeous. So <laughs> I things are going very well up uh, in Los Angeles. How are um, you? I am doing great. That's so good to hear. I, uh, as we were just chatting about, just moved back out to Southern California as well. So I'm enjoying a similar sunlight situation, which I'm so excited about because... You know, it just makes everything better. The West Coast is the best coast. It really is. And I'm I'm so excited to talk to you today. For those listening, Jonathan is an incredible writer. Or actually, do you want to give a little, a little intro to who you are before we jump in? Oh, sure. Um, my name is Jonathan Parks Ramage. I'm a novelist, uh, screenwriter, uh, journalist. Um, my... A debut novel, um, which is titled Yes, Daddy, uh, just recently came out um, on May 18th. Uh, so about, a, oh my God, a month ago from wow. today, or at least, I mean, when we're recording this. <laughs> um, and yeah, my my other work, I mean, my, my writing... Uh, tends to focus on LGBTQ plus issues. Um, both my journalism and my fiction um, kind of operate in that arena. My work has been in uh, Vice, Out Magazine, W Magazine, L uh, Slate, um, and other platforms. And I'm just happy to be here talking with you. Oh, that's so, so awesome to hear. I, my gosh, I have so many questions about your book normally we start off with the same question but i'm gonna before we ask that question i want to ask you um your book yes daddy is that so i've i've written nonfiction. i've never i've tried to write fiction one time and i struggled tremendously with it but i've heard a lot of people talk about how when they're writing fiction it actually is more true than nonfiction because you can kind of write your truth into these characters' lives and whatnot without having to, just with getting to, like, hide it in a story in a way. Do you feel like that, like, do you relate to stories and whatnot that you wrote in your book? Yes, for sure. I mean, I I like to say that the book is personal and not autobiographical. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book, you know, follows a young aspiring playwright who's trying to make it in new york city and he winds up dating this much older wealthy famous writer who he thinks is going to be the answer to his every prayer and uh at first they start this kind of passionate affair and the older writer takes um the younger writer out to his hamptons compound for the summer where things take a very uh dark turn and you know i think that it's exactly what you're saying. I mean, what I love about fiction is, um, you know, as a writer, I was able to, I think, explore my own experiences in my early 20s where I was really lost in New York City and and dating much older men and, and trying to find my direction that way and, and really kind of getting into a lot of not-so-great scenarios. Um, and so... 
you know, I think that the lens of fiction gives you freedom to really kind of explore your subconscious and almost kind of conjure up this dream, at least for me, it's almost like conjuring up this dream, um, which was a way of processing my reality uh, that I lived um, back in my 20s. So, so yeah, I mean, I think I think they're just two very different mediums. But sometimes I think that that fiction can access truths that um, might be difficult to talk about in a nonfiction space um, or that might not be rendered as uh, evocatively in a nonfiction space. So, yeah, mm. that's a great question. Okay, that makes a lot of sense to me and is so cool that you had just a way to get that processed out in such a creative way. And Oh, man, I can imagine. Well, I can't really imagine growing up and or having the New York City be the backdrop of your early 20s. I, I spent that time in L.A., which is its own chaos, as you know. But yes. New York City. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, anyway, wait, Jonathan, I want to ask you the question I normally ask to start off all of these interviews is to describe the relationship that you have with your body. Yes. Um, I think that right now I'm in a harmonious relationship with my body. That doesn't mean, I think, harmonious doesn't mean that there's no conflict or no um, tension. But, um, you know, I think that I am living in harmony with my body. I think I was really kind of out of sync, out of harmony uh, discordant within my body at the beginning of the pandemic, I think as a lot of people were, um, mm -hmm. I think I felt, um, disconnected from my body in, in that I, I was really engaging in behaviors that were not healthy or not, or not, um, really giving my body life, I think as coping mechanisms, um, which just actually made all the stress and anxiety I was feeling worse. I mean, I was eating uh, excessively, uh, drinking excessively. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, I think that and, and not sleeping well and not feeling good. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to like judge anyone for, for how they might uh, choose to eat or drink or anything like that. Um, but I think for me, I was eating in a way which made me eating and drinking in a way which made me feel bad, which made my body feel bad. And, and, and I wasn't paying attention to what my body needed for so long. And so it really took some work, I think. And again, I'm sure this is, this describes a lot of people's experience in the pandemic, but it really took a lot of work to kind of balance the scales. And really, I cut back significantly on drinking. My partner stopped drinking altogether. Um, I really got into a much better rhythm in terms of the food I was putting into my body and not just kind of going into autopilot and, and binging, essentially, to kind of drown out feelings. And I think also therapy has really helped me be present with my feelings instead of, of, of drowning them out with distractions. Um, so yeah, I think that's like the current and most recent kind of history, the journey I've been on with my body in, in the pandemic. And I'm not saying that like, it's again, I think it's more harmonious now. I think if anything, I, can be a little bit um, overly 
um, obsessive at times and now how I'm kind of regulating what I eat and drink. And, and, you know, sometimes it starts to tip in the other direction, but I think that I'm really working to find that, that balance after being kind of out of balance for so long. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially what you're talking about with uh, drinking. That's honestly like just the awareness of wanting to have that conversation and look inwards at at drinking and eating and like what your relationship is with those things is so huge. I've been kind of having similar similar thoughts. I recently stopped drinking for a while to kind of examine a similar thing of like, why am I putting this into my body? What am I trying to avoid? What am I trying to feel or not feel and it it like opens a lot of doors into conversations that are really important so I love I love that that's been a part of your journey Um, thank you I love it's been a part of yours I mean yeah I think we're all kind of on that yeah absolutely that journey it's a lifelong journey (laughs) (laughs) absolutely for sure for sure and I also love the word harmonious with that I think like I don't know I mean that's the whole reason I started this podcast was to kind of figure out how to become harmonious with my body and how I realized that kind of the answer to a lot of my problems was found in talking about the relationship I have with my body because your body is like yourself your whole like how you treat yourself and whatnot and yeah so anyway i i love that um you said so your lifelong journey with your body i'm sure has been like a whole thing a whole whole thing as it has been for so (laughs) many people but would you want to talk about a time when you felt the most disconnected from yourself yeah um i would say uh, I was diagnosed with a testicular cancer when I was uh, 30 years old, just about a month after my 30th birthday. So happy birthday to me. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, I would say, the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me. Um, and that is just a bizarre... B- thing to hear because it is so surreal and I also think that it is it immediately kind of pushes you out of your body in that moment because all of a sudden you're it's just this weird kind of disconcerting realization that you are at war with your body and that there is something inside your body that is actively trying to kill you and that's kind of um really impossible to kind of metabolize um and it's um and so there's so much focus on your body but but also like this weird i think also yeah disconnection from the body as you kind of are trying to stand outside and say what is happening inside me like this is so um terrifying and alien and um uncomfortable just to be in my own skin knowing that again there's something inside me that's um trying to kill me and i mean also then seeing in the case of testicular cancer seeing the tumor essentially grow i mean you're able to watch it grow and towards the end it you know was growing rapidly and thankfully um uh, testicular cancer is one of the best types of cancer you can get. Um, 
but no cancer is fun. <laughs> Wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> Zero out of 10 recommend. Um, that makes sense. <laughs> um, so, so, so thankfully there was surgery that I, I, under, I was very fortunate to have healthcare. I'm very fortunate to have access to medical care. Um, and that, that removed the, the cancer uh, successfully. But even after it was removed, there was this kind of bizarre um, moment where my lymph nodes were still showing up on my CT scan and there was a worry that the cancer had spread to my lymph nodes, which would be a much more serious uh, diagnosis. Um, there was a lot of debate, a lot of going to different doctors about what to do, whether to monitor, whether to do surgery on my abdomen, which would be much more invasive and much more serious. Um, so that is just like terrifying to exist. And it, it doesn't really allow your body to relax at all because you're just still not sure if you're you're out of the woods. And so, you know, when I do go in for my checkups, you know, to have, to have to kind of monitor just my body and, and get, I do get like regular now, they're about yearly um, visits to my cancer doctor. I mean, there are still those moments that ooh, you just kind of feel the feelings come back again. It's the, the diagnosis is great. The cancer's over. It's just a check-in, but you still kind of, can be transported kind of back to those moments and irrational fears kind of rise to the surface um, just because you're taken back to the hospital, back to the moment, back to the kind of trauma of getting diagnosed with cancer. So yeah, that is when I think I felt most disconnected in my life from my body. Oh man, I can't even imagine like just the trust that it takes to build back up between you and your body. Like how you said it was sounded so so perfect of like there's something in your body that's trying to kill you and it's like your body's fighting against you i just that that is a plot twist (laughs) (laughs) with someone's body my god very dark plot twist the worst thriller you've ever lived through the worst one my gosh in what ways do you feel like you fought back when it came to or no here's a better question were you aware at that time that you were struggling with a relationship with your body or that there was a disconnection there like did you have the language for that or was it kind of just like autopilot living through it no it was pretty much just autopilot powering through it um Mm -hmm. there was not there wasn't any room for any sort of reflection or any sort of kind of um distance or any way to really metabolize what was happening to me because it was all just happening to me and it was happening so fast and i just yeah there was zero room for for reflection it was truly just kind of about um powering through and i you know i was very lucky also to have a support system of really good friends and my family all flew out um and rented an airbnb in new york um to help me uh uh, to basically to be there for my surgery and then to help me recover um and so so really it was just kind of 
the momentum of the crisis was all there wasn't time to stop and think it was just like do 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 have to get through this um which i think probably kind of inflicts its own sort of damage like the inability to just i mean yeah it's just like living through any sort of trauma um you know there's there's oftentimes not time to stop and reflect like how is this affecting me um and it's more just how the hell do i get through this what's the next thing that i have to do in order to survive oh yeah absolutely that's kind of like as my therapist likes to talk about it like a strategy in itself of like getting through it is to choose or not even to choose not to reflect but you're just your body going on autopilot and not taking that time because it's like it's just so much that yes I don't know how you even comprehend that when you're in it. No, totally. Yeah, because it's like it's not safe yet to really look at it and understand what was going on. And like now in recovery and whatnot, it's like a totally different, I'm assuming, of looking back. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it, it, I think that that time and space is, is really, um, crucial. Um, and I think it wasn't, I mean, really until I was in therapy that I, which was not for years after, um, that, uh, diagnosis that I was able to even kind of start to process how it af- affected me or how it impacted me. So I don't, yeah, I don't even know that the reflection happened like immediately afterwards or may, not even, probably not even for years afterwards, um, because it was a few years before I was in therapy. But God, I mean, I should have been in therapy <laughs> so much sooner after that. I don't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah. Oh, wow. What kind of brought that decision to go to therapy? Like, what did that, what did that look like? Uh, well, I think that, honestly, the first time, um, I went to therapy. It was really uh, inspired by kind of another traumatic event in my life, which was my parents got a divorce. Um, Very sudden, very out of the blue, kind of completely shook my world and took me by surprise. And that was maybe four or five years ago now. Um, And so that, that, was kind of the thing that I, that inspired me to get into therapy, I think. Um, but again, that therapy was kind of focused on dealing with kind of the immediacy of what was happening in my life, um, and less about reflection. And it really wasn't until, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, I, I kind of, I was with that therapist for a while and then it stopped, I feel like being productive. And it wasn't until the beginning of the pandemic that I went back to therapy. Um, and that was, I finally found, I finally felt like I'd found my person. I felt like, you know, cause I don't know how many therapists you've had over the course of your life, but the first one I had, it wasn't quite a good connection. I mean, it was like, felt like something I just, was good to have someone there to talk about this kind of traumatic shit I was going through with my family, but there wasn't, there wasn't enough of a connection to kind of sustain. I didn't feel like we were, we were vibing on that level. And now I have found my dream therapist who I absolutely adore. And so I think now I'm, 
I'm, and though obviously the pandemic was something that was affecting my, my life, you know, I think, I think not having to go through kind of an immediate, super intense trauma with my therapist and being able to kind of really go back and reflect on, uh, you know, my life leading up to this point and kind of the structures and overlapping, um, you know, areas of trauma and um, things like that. I, I really feel like I didn't get into a groove until I found her. So, yeah. So, you know, honestly, it's been a reason. This is all stuff I'm still, uh, you know, reflecting on working through. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, that that's very relatable. When it comes to, like, your relationship with your therapist, it honestly oh, you have to really find someone, like you're saying, who gets you and who just, not even just gets you, but just you feel safe and comfortable with. Because if you don't feel 100 million percent safe, even if it's like an incredible therapist, like if you don't feel safe and understood, nothing nothing can really come from that. Yes, no, I, I fully agree. And I think there's also, I mean, just kind of, like a certain chemistry. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like it's just like, does this person click with me? Does this person challenge me? Does this person engage me on a level which I find inspiring? And does this person inspire me to push deeper? Um, And so that's what I'm grateful for with my current therapist that I think the first time around, I just wasn't quite getting yeah. Oh, I can definitely agree with that. I do you do you like the Enneagram at all? I you know, it's so funny. I grew up in a as a child of ministers. Um, and I was as a child, I have not redone it um, in a very long time, like since mm-hmm. I was probably in middle school. Um, but I would be curious to retake it now. I think at the time I was an ENFP, um, but I don't know if that still holds true. And I don't even know if I really remember exactly what that means. So I could be like dropping something, which just like does not make sense <laughs> I currently am. Just um, throwing some letters and numbers out there. Yeah, no, but that's, that's what I was. But again, that's like, you know, eighth, eighth or ninth grade I took it. So yeah, why do you yeah. ask? Oh, just because my, my therapist one time at the, the current one I have now, um, she asked me around the time we first started, she's like, what's your Enneagram number? And I told her and she was like, oh, me too. And I'm like, that makes sense. You understand oh, me. I'm You're thinking mine. of Myers-Briggs. Is it, wait, am I thinking of Myers-Briggs or am I thinking of the Enneagram? What are I the letters and what are the numbers? So the, so the numbers are the Enneagram and I'm pretty sure you're thinking of Myers-Briggs with the letters. The Enneagrams oh, are like okay, one okay. through nine. I, I see, I see. So I have, I have not done the Enneagram then. Okay, well, highly recommend it if you're into self-reflection, which as a writer, I'm assuming you are. It's the best. But yeah, the Enneagram is amazing. But anyway, you're a child of ministers. That's a whole, what's that like? What what, what did that look like growing up? Um, it looked like um, a lot of uh, just, I mean, when I was a, a kid, it was like a lot of like, fun being the preacher's kid. I mean, my parents were both ministers within this denomination called the United Church of Christ. Um, so, which is thankfully a more progressive, um, overall, uh, denomination, but 
um, I grew up in kind of a conservative small town in Massachusetts. Um, and so the churches that my parents were preaching at, despite being a part of kind of a larger liberal denomination, were um, both in conservative small towns. So the culture of the towns were kind of at odds with the overall denomination. And I think the churches lean more conservative, honestly. But my parents were were very um, liberal. And so I was lucky to avoid, you know, a lot of uh, spiritual trauma that I feel like people endure often growing up in evangelical contexts, especially people who might have um, pastors or ministers as, as, as parents. But, um, you know, what was interesting is you know, I spent so much time in my father's church as a child. It was a real kind of hub for me socially um, and a real community. Um, but when I came out to my parents, I was in eighth grade, which was very young. Um, and I told them that I was uh, gay and they were, you know, I think a little, you know, taken aback. Um not surprised because, you know, I'm very gay, always have been. So I think it was <laughs> something they saw coming. Um, Love but, it. Uh, you know, the decision was made that it wouldn't be wise to tell people at church. Um, and I think that the reason for that was um, because my church was in a smaller town, because my parents were worried about me as an eighth grader, because they were probably also worried about their jobs and like the optics in a small town of having a gay son and people who might not be supportive. And I think, you know, they're also probably just trying to protect me. And, you know, but I think as a result, um, there was kind of a break in my life in terms of any sort of religion like it, around eighth grade i just kind of stopped going to church and then it wasn't a part of my life and it never really was after that until many years later when i found um this progressive affirming faith community with lots of queer people um you know a real devotion to intersectional uh social justice this church called new abbey that i go to now um, oh, I think I've heard of that. Yes, there, it's like a progressive faith community in, in Pasadena, and it's it's amazing, and it's like it's the opposite of any sort of uh, uh, religious conservatism. And there's a real, it's a really beautiful, very queer um, community. Um, so, so that was kind of the first time, and this was again just a few years ago that I kind of reintegrated religion into my life after. Mm kind of growing up with these um, minister parents and, and being divorced from that for a while, from my faith for a while. Yeah. Wow. That, man. So I, I like, I'm kind of in the middle of that journey at the moment of like trying to regather or refigure out like what faith looks like. Cause I grew up with super evangelical parents and mm -hmm. they kind of had like, we didn't go to church. They kind of just had their own little family Bible studies. It felt very culty, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but yes, but very conservative. And so then uh, when I came out, I, 
it took it took a lot to kind of get me out of church world because I was trying so hard to hold on to some kind of faith religion thing. But eventually, um, it just felt too hard to kind of reconcile it anymore. And I was yes. like, I just want to have my life and live into who I am and not have to try to make that okay with a book. And yeah, uh, yeah and so now, years later, though, I'm kind of like, I want to know... I don't know. I like want to know what it would look like to get back into a world where I don't have to reconcile it, but it just like is already celebrated. And I don't know, like what, what is that journey looks like for you of kind of um, finding a way back into there, into that world where it feels safe. Cause I read one of your blogs. Um, I have it up here actually. Um, Jesus, Mary and Joe Jonas. Yes. Yes. Love the name, by the way. Um, <laughs> love some I Joe love Jones. a pun. I can't resist. <laughs> yes. But it was interesting. I, I actually have been to that church you were talking about, Reality, and back in my super Christian days. Yes. Um, before coming out, it, I can, your description of kind of what happened and the story sounds very familiar to walking in there and just everything that you said about it. I was like, yes, I have totally been to this church. Yes. Um, but what what like what was the journey back into that world what did that look like for you and how do you get to where you are now yeah well i mean it was i went into that um into that piece not really i, I expected it to be more kind of just a journalistic piece that that uh was a little bit more straightforward and straightforward reporting and less personal um kind of going deep inside this church which um you know i think is emblematic of a lot of the hipster christianity quote-unquote hipster christianity that you see kind of in, in contemporary evangelicalism um and kind of pulling back the surface and kind of exposing all the toxicity in terms mm -hmm. of um, how they treat queer people and women and uh, issues of racism. Like, I mean, you name it, the evangelical church is <laughs> responsible <laughs> for it. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, so much toxicity. Um, so, so that was kind of my intent. And then I went in and I embedded myself in the congregation for about six months and and um, spoke with a pastor at length and went to small groups. And I mean, a lot that I went to didn't even make it into the piece. Um, but what I was kind of surprised by was the um, ways in which I resonated with the community. And it was the first time I'd really been back to any church since I was a kid. And so that was really kind of a big twist for me. Um, and so as a, uh, as a grown up to go back into that environment, um, was really kind of surprising in the way that I found myself resonating with this, despite the fact that it was such a toxic community and I knew their position on queer people. Um, and so it, it was really kind of disconcerting and disorienting to be, um, 
there and and ultimately you know i walked away feeling kind of just uneasy <laughs> um mm-hmm. but you know i because i because because it, it's this weird it's this also this really insidious message of like oh yes everyone's welcome here but the minute you get inside you're going to hell um, <laughs> because of these decisions but mm-hmm. we still love you so we're still welcome it's like the the message has is the message of like everyone is welcome is so deceptive and i think evil because it's it's not the truth and and so after i published that i actually got an email from someone being like hey like i read your piece and i, I also used to go there and it's so you know bad and evil but i found this community which is the opposite of that um and which does not is all about deconstructing kind of the toxicity at the heart of so much of christianity and and reconstructing it in a way which you know is is healthy and lifts people up and celebrates humanity as opposed to shaming people for for who they are um so it was it was a very interesting journey and so then i i'm going to that church and i did a piece another piece called can you be queer and christian um which kind of looked at a lot of queer activists who had left the evangelical church who were working to reconstruct their faith and working to create safe spaces for other queer and trans people to reconstruct their faith um, and kind of reclaim that for themselves um, in a context which didn't oppress them or harm them. So, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the, the journey. Um, but yeah, and New Abbey is just like also just a fun place and very, very queer, which I love. <laughs> That's the best. I want to be in all the queer spaces. So if you see me over there in Pasadena, I'll yeah, wait at you. It's a little bit of a commute from San Diego's. But... Just a little bit. Just a smidge. <laughs> Oh my gosh. No, that's that's wonderful. I love um how you said them giving that like giving that persona of we welcome everybody, but then once you get in the door, it's like, oh, just kidding. No, you don't. That's like way more cruel than just flat out being homophobic from the top. Yeah. I mean I Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, you're good. I was gonna say because that gives this false sense of hope for everybody going in there that they think there's going to be this place where they're welcome and loved but really it's just gonna be a big giant ball of trauma and yeah good. it's yeah. just it's a it's a bait and switch and it's a really evil one and i yeah i think i mean i i say it in the easy thing but i have more respect for like the westboro not that i have any respect but for, <laughs> for the westboro baptist church and how just upfront with their homophobia they are because there's yeah. no questions and they're not trying to lure queer people into their community you know yeah, what i mean yeah. like i think it's actually more insidious to to claim that you're welcoming someone and then impress uh basically oppress them in a way which um leads to suicidal ideation depression so much trauma that can take a lifetime to untangle so oh yeah because it's just like the message of that of like you are bad because of your sexuality you are going to hell it's just like it, similar to what you said well similar but 
I'm sure completely different to what you said earlier about um, feeling like there was or something being inside your body that was trying to kill you. It's like that's kind of the message they're putting there. It's like your body is against you because it has these desires that are wrong. And that just that like the internalized homophobia that I've heard so many people talk about growing up with in those kind of cultures and just kind of. I don't know, just hating themselves. And like you're saying, like the suicidal ideation and depression, it's like this feeling of my body is bad. And how do I, how do I get, how do I change it or manipulate it or just be okay? And I don't know. It's like, it's like you have to disconnect from your body in order to get through all that. Yeah, of course. And especially because, I mean, the the body is the site of your sexuality. Um, you know, the, the, the body is absolutely kind of at the heart of so much of your identity. Um, and you know, if, if someone is telling you that what your body is doing is wrong, I mean, how do you even rectify that within yourself? That creates a huge schism, I think Mm -hmm. within you, um, you know, to have someone say your body is bad and not behaving in the way it should. What a mind fuck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. How do you say, or like, how, how would you describe the way, um, did you say the church is called New Abbey Church? Yes. Okay. How would you say, like, sexuality and the relationships we have with, or like, your body and all that stuff, how's that talked about there, um, I guess, in opposition to evangelical world yeah i mean i would say that everyone is is celebrated and there's also a big i mean i think because so many people in the community come from um an evangelical background that there is a big focus on healing as well um Mm. that there's a big focus on healing the body healing any sort of trauma or schisms which have um have you know formed inside of you so i i would say that the conversations often focus on healing and the healing of trauma the mending of relationships i would say that that is uh where a lot of the conversation lies in terms of of you know how they handle the discussion around sexuality, but also specifically people who have left the evangelical church because of trauma they've experienced. And it's not just around queer people. I mean, so many people experience, I think, so much, I mean, in terms of purity culture, um, you know, again, evangelical church has trauma to hand out to just about anyone who (laughs) wants to get involved. Yeah, no, exactly. And so I think that, that it's not it's not i mean there are i think because there are so many queer people there's a lot of conversations around queerness but but it's not limited to that and i think that that yeah i mean you want to talk about like purity culture and weird ideas around sex and the body i mean you know uh i think that the conversations do extend just beyond the queer community as well um into how people have been harmed by by evangelicalism yeah, that that sounds like such a great environment to just to just be able to like actually ask the questions that 
you want to ask and untangle the stuff you want to untangle and just kind of wrestle with it in a way where you're not trying to just I don't know I mean like I said at the at the beginning of this conversation like in my kind of decision to well not even decision to kind of stop being so involved in Christian world but really just kind of the the fall apart of that was the like I didn't want to have to reconcile try to make just be okay with what this thing says I don't want to have to defend myself anymore and it sounds like that's such a safe place to to not have to do that but to just get to figure it out yeah exactly there's no no defense needed I mean the the common assumption is that everyone is welcome and everyone is loved exactly how they are and that is I think a really wonderful place to work from as opposed to the opposite which again like you're saying it puts a person immediately on the defense um, mm-hmm. in terms of having to basically justify their existence um, because of some really toxic evangelical dogma. Wow. Well, I want to talk more about your book. Yes, Daddy. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, so one question or one thing that I, I think I just wanted to hear more of your thoughts on was... Um, the power dynamic type stuff between Jonah and Richard. I found that so... Ugh, this would take a long time to tell the story, so I'm not going to, but I had a somewhat similar-ish experience with a boss of mine a while back, and it just it felt scary familiar to me kind of just reading how their relationships started and what was going on in Jonah's mind and the manipulation and the it just it feels so familiar in a very dark way and I just am curious as to like kind of how how you came about into that story and what that looked like um I mean I came about into the story I think I mean just to orient people who are listening Jonah is the younger writer who I mentioned um, when I was talking about the synopsis in the beginning. Jonah is the younger writer who gets into a relationship with a much older, wealthy, famous playwright. And there's obviously huge discrepancies in the power dynamic between someone who is poor and broke um, and working in a restaurant, struggling to make ends meet, and someone who is wildly wealthy and famous and very successful. Um, so I think the entry point was for me was my own personal experience dating much older, wealthy, famous men in New York City when I first got there in my early 20s. Um, and I mm. think that I, I got to New York and I started working in a restaurant, which was um, a, a gay restaurant essentially it was kind of like a gay upscale hooters uh for lack of a better analogy <laughs> um where uh you know they employed like cute young gay men um much older wealthy clientele was uh, there sexual harassment was just kind of expected and tolerated and just part of the work culture there that I experienced. And, you know, I think moving to New York, I just got, I mean, that was my first really experience within the gay community in New York, within New York in general. And I just kind of learned all the wrong lessons from that environment. I think I, I mean, if you want to talk about your body, I mean, I, I feel like I learned that my body was a commodity and that my mm-hmm. body was a way to 
get ahead in this world. And the way to get ahead was to use my body by getting in relationships with older, wealthy men who would supply me with money, connections, love, the things I needed. Um, and obviously there are so many things wrong with that idea, um, you know, especially in terms of seeking validation from just anyone else and not really doing the work to look within and learn how to love myself. Um, so I spent many years kind of chasing daddies for lack of a better uh, term. And, you know, I think I, I was so lost for so long because of that. And also within those relationships, there is kind of this intense uh, power dynamic in which, you know, it was, there was no really room to be myself or room to be anything other than essentially almost a toy for this person. I mean, that's harsh and reductive. Some of the relationships I had were more meaningful than others, but, but, you know, that was, so that, that was kind of the, the impetus it was again, this desire to kind of reflect on that period of time where, you know, I was going through this string of men and feeling so lost um, and not getting the direction that I thought I would from these relationships instead just feeling more lost within them. That makes a lot of sense. I can imagine that being a very, well, I guess just from reading, uh, just from reading your book, just hearing like the thoughts and kind of what led up to, what led up to him, to Jonah wanting that relationship and working so hard to stay in it at the beginning when it was clearly becoming more and more abusive. It just, oh my gosh, I, I had, who, oh my, uh, that's her name, Emily Joy. Have you heard of Emily Joy? Um, I don't think so. Okay, well, she wrote this book called Church Two, and uh, oh. yes, yes, and so oh, she, I remember the hashtag that was happening. Yeah, so she started that hashtag and then wrote um, the Church Two book about it, and she talks a lot about um, grooming and kind of how she compared it to like boiling a frog like you can't boil a frog by just putting the frog in the like boiling hot water you have to put him in normal temperature water and then little by little turn up the temperature until he boils and so uh that analogy makes so much sense to me because it's like the whole grooming process of like give a like this idea of this really amazing relationship like super honeymoony and then little by little become more abusive and then it's like you just totally confuse the person and they're caught in this whole like trust battle of but you were the safe person so you can't possibly be bad and this can't be abusive because of all these memories and you make me feel so special and yeah there's so much that goes into that oh there's just so so much especially with like the me too movement and just uh rape culture in general and kind of like the blurred lines and yeah well i feel like oftentimes even now you know victims are often not believed because of their decision to stay with an abusive partner and i think that there's still this idea that is false that is out there that, oh, well, why wouldn't you just leave? This relationship is 
is abusive. Why wouldn't you just leave? And the answer is because you love this person, because this person is your whole world, because this person is who you feel safe with, even though they're abusing you. I mean, it's, it's, so I wanted to paint this detailed portrait of someone who is lost and gets increasingly lost in this relationship to also fight against, I think, that stigma that exists against victims who stay in abusive relationships. I mean, to kind of paint a portrait of a relationship that is abusive, despite someone making the decision to stay within it. Um, and so, yeah, I think that was, that was also part of the reason why I wanted to, to kind of paint that picture. Yeah. Yeah. That's such, such an incredible, such an incredible job at, at painting that picture. Like I said, when I started reading it, it just felt like, oh, it just went right, right to the soul. <laughs> it's like, it's so, it's so important to get that kind of story across for so many reasons, including the one that you just mentioned about victims not being believed because even like how you started it in the court, the court case of him or the, um, not court, well, I guess court case, yeah. the trial. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Just even how you started that and how you kind of painted the picture of it being so scary and confusing and hard for Jonah to say, to tell the truth about what happened like the manipulation like continues even in that room even after like it just it goes so deep so so deep yeah because that kind of trauma i think really does go so deep and that was another part of the what, what also then i wanted to show is kind of the ways that trauma can echo across the lifetime and how you know, someone can still have kind of their claws in you years later if, if you haven't, you know, been trying to work to to work through that. Um, and so, so yeah, and also, I mean, the criminal justice system, I mean, that's a whole different, it's a whole other yeah. podcast, the failure <laughs> oh, yeah. in general of mm-hmm. the criminal justice system um, to do anything to help, I mean, so many people, but particularly victims of sexual assault, I mean... It just, it fails victims of sexual assault and rape victims again and again. Um, oh, yeah. And so that was kind of another aspect I wanted to explore within the book. Oh, yeah. My gosh. It's being made into a, a Netflix show or? Uh, being adapted by Amazon Studios. Okay. Is it into a, a movie or a show? Uh, for a series. A series. I am so excited. I read that after after us talking about the interview. I was doing more research, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be on TV." It's so congratulations, first of all. And Thank you. Yeah, and second, I'm so excited. Well, I'm excited for you, and I'm just excited for the story to be told to a wider, broader audience because it's such an important, such an important narrative that people that people need to hear. So yeah, thank you for writing it and for your blogs and all the things, Jonathan. Oh, thank you. And thank you yes. for having me on. This is such been such an amazing convo. I love yeah. going deep. So this is really good. Yes, thank you. I'm happy. I'm happy too. I have I have two more questions for you before we yes. sign off. Is that Let's okay? Let's do it. Oh yeah, of course. Okay. Awesome. My my first question would be um 
It's kind of a twofold question. Okay, I lied. I have three questions for you before we sign off. <laughs> yes, go for okay. it. Okay, so the first one is uh, today in your like just normal everyday life, what are things that you do to intentionally try to connect with your body if you're feeling disconnected, if you're having a bad day, or if you just want to? Like, what are some practical things that you enjoy? Stretching. Oof. I, oh, I was literally just stretching my back. <laughs> right as um, I asked that. And running. I would say those are the two. That's another, I mean, that was kind of, we are going back to what we were talking about earlier and kind of readjusting my relationship to my body through the pandemic. Um, I started running, which I never did. Um, mm. And I have, I live right by Elysian Park in, uh, Echo Park in Los Angeles, and I oh, go so lucky. <laughs> jogging there four to five times a week, and it is just, it feels incredible. Also, to just be in that gorgeous setting, but moreover, yes. it just oh. feels so incredible to just get out there, be in my body, and then also stretching before and after. I mean, I think that's, yeah, it just makes me feel fantastic. <laughs> so that is the thing. Yeah, that's Echo Park is absolutely beautiful. I am so happy for you that you live there. That place, I when I was there, I was in Burbank and North Hollywood, so I had to mm, go a little bit okay. of a ways to get to the really pretty parts. Yes. And that Echo Park was like the spot there in Silver Lake. And mm, mm-hmm. they're pretty close together, right? Oh, yeah, they're like right next to each other. Okay, yeah, so that's convenient because, you know, LA. Um, yes, oh, yes. <laughs> but Large yeah, but park. no, that that's wonderful. Yeah, no, totally. It's my routine. There you go. Um, My second out of three questions for you, which was originally the first one, but you know, um, (laughs) is what, uh, if you were to go back to talk to you in your early 20s, living in New York City and going through the things that we talked about, like what, what would you tell that person? Oh my God, stop dating older men. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Stop seeking, stop seeking, I think, validation and security in other people. Mm. And not, not stop seeking altogether, but seek it in yourself first. Yeah. And then go out and find it in a partner. But don't search for someone who is who you think is going to answer your every prayer and make your every wish come true because that's just a recipe for disaster oh yeah that's good advice for us all (laughs) my gosh okay my last and final question has nothing to do with anything else that we've been talking about is that okay with you oh my god yeah bring it on (laughs) okay amazing jonathan would you rather have to everywhere you go you have to ride in a ice cream truck that is always singing there's no ice cream in it but it's an (laughs) ice cream truck (laughs) and that's just your transportation no matter what like you can still like walk around but the ice cream truck is like your jam and it's always the music is always going off too um or or would you rather Everywhere you go, you are followed by a herd. I don't know if it's called a herd, but a herd of squirrels. <laughs> a, little, <laughs> a little pack herd, whatever it would be called. 
And they they really admire you. They think that you're the coolest. They love the way you dress. They think your hair is fun. And they're just following you around like a little fan club. But you can't you can't communicate with them because they're squirrels, so they're just kind of there. <laughs> Definitely the ice cream truck one hundred percent. Oh wow, why? Um well, because I could take, I mean, if the ice cream truck is just my transportation, yeah. I can definitely take breaks from the ice cream truck. It would be as annoying as fuck to constantly have <laughs> a twinkle, twinkle, little star, whatever the hell would be playing. But like oh, when yeah. I got out of my car, I mean, it would be a nightmare on a road trip. I probably would kill myself, but <laughs> I feel like literally having a pack of squirrels that never left your side would be truly insanity inspiring like that would oh, yeah i would i would spiral out into full-blown insanity so that yeah makes sense. sign That's me fair. up for that ice cream truck that is fair i would even be able to handle two hours on the 405 traffic with that over squirrel stalking my every move <laughs> oh good so we're aligned love that yeah we're aligned. i was for some reason i was thinking he's totally gonna pick the squirrels but when you said that ice cream truck i was like no that's that's oh fair God. that makes sense we need, like, a psychologist to come on and we tell do. us what this means about who we are. We do. I always think that in the back of my head when I end with these questions. I'm like, this is a very deep question out of everything we've talked about. This is going Perhaps to a new level. the deepest, yes. Oh, yes. Well, this has been so much fun. You are such a joy to talk to and oh, have so you. many good, yeah, so many good stories. Where, where can people find you and your work and your book? Where do you want to tell people to go? Um, um, my book is available wherever books are sold. I love indie booksellers. I say go get it from your local indie. Um, but yeah, wherever books are sold. And um, Instagram is my sole social media presence. And you can find me at JP Rampage. Okay. Amazing, amazing. Well, I will put all of that in the show notes below. And seriously, you guys, check out his book, Yes, Daddy, because it was... I was blown away by how well it was written. So go read it and follow him on all the things. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, Jonathan. We'll talk again. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 